Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words, create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is the 31st episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into a life journey that may be quite different than yours. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, learn, struggle, work, and live in our world. Throughout her entire career, my guest has sought to expand opportunities for and access to health and prosperity for people living at the world's margins. Early in career, both in private sector and for New York City, she managed the analysis of HIV AIDS surveillance data and implemented impact evaluations related to HIV AIDS programming and research capacity building. During a 15-year tenure at the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, she served as director of the Child Wellbeing Program and director of the African Health Initiative. Through partnerships among implementers, policymakers, and researchers, her aim was to reduce inequality, strengthen communities, and promote evidence-based policy decision-making, enabling children and families to lead healthy, vibrant, and self-determined lives. Now she as is at the Aspen Institute, I am humbled that Executive Director of the Aspen Global Innovators Group and Co-Chair of the Aspen Institute Forum on Women and Girls, Lola Adedokan, is joining me. Lola, welcome to Our Voices. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. This is a real, real treat. And we first must do a shout out to Roseanne Haggerty and Community Solutions, where we both serve on the board and which is uh, how I'm so fortunate to have crossed paths with you. So I'm really grateful, Lola, for your expertise, your experience, and perspective, and super addition to our board. Thank you. So, my friend, uh, uh, you have lived a career of service. I'm really keen to talk about what you've been up to lately in your new role. To start, though, I am looking forward to listeners getting to know you and what your journey in life has been like. Ugh, where where do I start? <laughs> no, no, no. Early childhood, earliest childhood memories. Yeah. Um. You know, when I, 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 for many, I spent sort of the pandemic actually doing a lot of the self reflection that I, you know, that many of us do early on. Um. So you know what, what really has shaped me has been the fact that you know I'm a Nigerian, 100 percent in the diaspora. Both of my parents came to the states in the 70s um, through kind of a missionary pipeline through Wisconsin of all places. Um, so that's where my older brother was born. And I, um, you know, we, my parents had a, a vision for themselves in the world and that took them to Georgia actually where Atlanta, Georgia, where I was born and my younger brother were born. We were there for 14 years and my young brother and I, we all went to private school, Catholic school, um, Sadly, the school systems in Georgia are much the same as they are now, um, just lacking in investment. So my parents, as Nigerians, 
um, committed to education, we're not going to risk our education um, to that system. And so, you know, really committed to saving and enabling us to go to private school. Um, my parents were both, my dad, uh, a taxi driver, but he's, uh, how do I describe him? He's uh, an adventurer, really, and a creator. Um, studied um, weaving and quilting um, in college, and just he's just a, an artist in his own right. Um, and an, an adventurer, um, he's an entrepreneur, he's everything like that. And my mother is just a, an academic and a realist and one of those kind of quiet spirits, but very influential in our family and um, was a librarian. Um, and so my younger brother and I spent so much time in the library during her shifts. We, we didn't have babysitters. Um, so we would follow her to the library during her shift and just hide out there all day. Um, so it probably won't be any surprise that um, we're all readers <laughs> because what else does one do <laughs> um, when stuck in a library for eight to 10 hours watching your mom work? Um, so we're, we were readers growing up. Um, and then we, um, my dad had a vision again for himself, uh, to open a restaurant, an African restaurant. So we all moved back to Wisconsin, um, a little suburb North of Milwaukee. Um, and we started there. Um, I will be honest. It was a kind of a hard start. Um, my mom had to stay in Georgia, uh, to sell the house and sort of wrap things up for us. It was a bit of an abrupt move. It was right before I started seventh grade. Um, and we moved and stayed with one of my dad's college buddies uh, and their family and their house, which, you know, looking back, uh, I f they were so generous. It was a big family, four kids, two adults. And then we moved in, three kids and my dad into their house um, and spent about two years living in their home. Um, my brothers and my dad shared a bed. Um, and I shared, you know, a bunk bed with the two daughters, the two um, women, kids who lived there. And that was, they weren't really thrilled with me. <laughs> uh, I can tell you that. <laughs> I was like an interloper um, for several years of their life. Uh, so that, was, that wasn't the greatest moment uh, for me or for my siblings, I don't think. But we adjusted. It's one of those moments in life where we really could see we, we really connected as a family and knew that it's beyond what we had, but about who we were and our relations. So I thought it was an important moment for us. Um, and then you know, we all came back together. My mom came, sold the house, and we uh, found a little condo to live in. Um, I spent a lot of time. Uh, my brothers and I lived in the same room. Uh, my parents had a bedroom, and it was a two-bedroom condo. Um, and my parents worked hard. Um, that, the restaurant was a, was a challenge. <laughs> Uh, another moment. Uh, my mom worked there. Um, she, that was not her desire. You know, she's a librarian. She's not trying to be out in front um, <laughs> waiting tables, although she did that a lot of her life. That was not her dream. Um, she wanted to get a PhD, um, and which she did eventually, which is incredible. Um, while taking care of three kids and helping my dad manage a restaurant, she still got her PhD, uh, which we are so proud of for her. And meant a lot for me in my life, watching her, you know, just endeavor and work and work and work and yet still pursue her own personal intellectual career on her own for herself. Um, so I really respect her, respect her enormously for that. Um, but alas, the, my first job started at 14, working at a restaurant. Um, I was always kind of a shy person, kind of introvert um, to myself. Um, my nickname, <laughs> um, I had two nicknames growing up and still do. 
the first was Iyalode. So I'm, you know, Yoruba, Nigerian. And that means leader of women. Um, when I look back, which means a lot. That, that's what my parents and family saw in me. Um, but the other nickname I had was Grandma Low, because I guess I was an old soul. So, so still to this day, those are the two nicknames um, that my family uh, call me. And, you know, I with love and lovingly, um, and I think I, I, I carry it well. Um, so that that's kind of how I grew up working hard with my brothers alongside, you know, working after school, working on the weekends, not much of a social life, I will say, you know, I was the only girl, so they kept a real close eye on me. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> I was not out and about. Um, rarely, you know, I really had to, it took a lot for my parents to let me go out um, and hang out with friends. Even when I'd say hanging out, what is hanging out? <laughs> um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was a very disciplined um, youth for me, um, which again, one of those, I'm a disciplined person to this day. Um, and, you know, the priority is always family, education, and, you know, a commitment to service, um, which both of my parents showed in many ways. They continue to give back and engage with my very extended Nigerian family um, who are all over the world, um, many in Nigeria, but elsewhere. Um, and so that's kind of my, my youth. Um, <laughs> well, let me pause there. This is so fascinating. So they pulled up out of Nigeria and they go to Wisconsin. Uh-huh. Okay. So that I have not lived in Wisconsin. So I'm just I'm wondering, do you, when you heard the stories, like why Wisconsin? And then does, were there a lot of Nigerians in Wisconsin? Uh-huh. Great question. Um, I think at the time there were, because there was this kind of missionary pipeline. So my parents came, my dad came first um, and stayed with this family through this church in Stevens Point, which is further north. Um, and then he was in school. And um, my parents went in high school. So he came, you know, for college, I, I'm pretty sure. And so my mom followed him a couple of years later um, to join him. They, they married actually, where I, not far from where I live now in Falls Church, Virginia. You know, I have to be honest, My, I, the story of their life, I have yet to unpack. And I, that's one of my goals um, in the next few years is to really figure it out. Um, the immigrant stories are so different and they, they really kept kind of mum about their stories. So not really sure um, why Stevens Point really, but it's it was a start for them. And, you know, as immigrants, you know, anywhere you can start in America is a good start. Yeah, that's so great. The You know, I've had a few uh, friends and folks who are Nigerian on the show. And the, the re- race relations thing is really fascinating. So I was born in Stone Mountain, Georgia, specifically, um, which is the home of the KKK. So racism at that time for me and my family was very overt. It was very clear. There were very negative experiences that happened to my dad, to my mom, to me and my siblings where we were excluded openly. We weren't allowed in people's houses and told that, Um, you know, my neighborhood was, you know, we were the first black family to live there. There was another black family um, and we had each other. Uh, the, The most troubling experiences I had really were the race relations in the Midwest. Um, you know how they call it Minnesota nice? 
Mm. Um, there's this, there's this very real, still painful, very on the surface racism in the Midwest, but they hide it. And so it's so insidious. Um, and so it, for me, I couldn't unpack it because I was so used to being so front and center in my face. It took a little adjusting to realize the treatment. The first time I was ever really called the N-word to my face was in Wisconsin by another kid at a track meet. It really took me aback. I won and I was, you know, celebrating in my win, but not, you know, like any other person would celebrate in their win, not in anybody's face. And that's the first time I heard it. And, you know, that can really, that was a blow. And it is one of those moments where I was like, started to really um, take in this, this like, no celebration of your experiences, just keep it moving, (laughs) keep it to yourself. Um, So, you know, race relations, it's, uh, it's, it was very messy. And um, I have to be frank, I have no real love lost for the Midwest experience. Um, My parents are still there. um, And, you know, of course, we visit, but it's, uh, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, that's so painful. And I'm really so sorry for you to experience it and better to know it, I guess, um, than not, or perhaps mm-hmm. you really could make a case for naivete. Did your parents attempt to explain it to you at all? It was just sort of a, we don't say anything about this. Um, they would, they would name experiences occasionally because it was all very personal and painful for them, but they would never let us use that as an excuse for not doing anything. That was never, um, we didn't have in-depth conversations about racism. It just was a part of life. And it would never be any reason why we couldn't achieve what we deserved or what we what our destiny was meant to be. That's how I felt. Yeah, that's really powerful. And it sounds good. Was that ever hard for you, Lola? Or are you just like, look, I'm better this this game on, not taking me down? Um, it was harder you know what? Actually, it wasn't very hard at, until I became an adult um, because I sort of built like an armor. It just wasn't going to be a thing that phased me. So I never really put any thought into it. I never really second guessed why people would treat me differently or if they did. The only time times I really felt a struggle with it was really amongst other Black Americans. Um, you know, you hear how I speak in when I was a kid, they always say I spoke like a white person. Um, I have no accents from anywhere really. Um, and so I always, I wasn't really included um, in the black community. And there was very much, especially in the Midwest, this, this sort of tension between the African-American community and what you asked earlier, a very robust in Milwaukee, especially now, but when I was growing up, African community, Nigerian community, Senegalese, West African community. So there's still that tension, um, but long way of saying, no, it never, we are, we are a family that's always looking forward, not looking back. So that's the attitude I took. Yeah, noble, a family looking forward. I love that. What, and there's no right, wrong answer. I am really curious about this when you think about these relations of the African American community and, and the, you know, African West African um, concept, because there's a lot of self-confidence so much, I mean, just, you know, just making it 
take no prisoners, mm-hmm. make it happen. No feeling sorry for ourselves. Mm-hmm. How, um, how, how do you, I mean, how do you think about that for them, for you? I'm just, I'm really, I'm really, really curious about this. The sort of pull you up by your own bootstraps, sort of. Yeah, that just but the bridge amongst folks who have, you know, maybe oh. even deeper connection, and you know, it's 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 you know, it's, you see people who it's tough, and they're just like they're gonna be tougher, yeah, and they're gonna find their way, and make it happen, and then you see folks who perhaps that isn't it. And I don't know if it's a fear of failure. I don't know if it's a programming from whatever you know the the um, the 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 ghost of slavery, what have you. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm just really wondering, you know, and not that you need to make huge sense of it, but it is something mm-hmm. that really I'm I'm curious about. Yeah, I you know, he, here's a here's a tension that I'll name. Um I would say that uh people recognize or, or or state that being a Nigerian, especially, we're kind of a, a model minority for the African um, continent. And um, because of that, uh, it, it adds an additional level of, of tension, um, especially amongst African-Americans. I think one of the other challenges is I've always been privilege to know my history. Like I, I have no question about where I am, where I come from, where the lineage is. There's just no question about that. And for a lot of sort of African-Americans, that's not the case. And ha- having or not having that lends itself, I feel, to a certain amount of um, just, uh, you know, questioning of who we are and where we fit and how we are together as a community. Um, and I, you know, there's nothing like the media uh, and the external world to create even more distance between people and find new ways of cutting communities in pieces. And that happens everywhere. But I think especially, I know that especially in the, in the Midwest, finding ways to separate oneself from another group who may not be doing as well as another group is just a survival tactic. Um, so I understand, but it's really so unproductive <laughs> and sad. Yeah, that's very insightful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Lola. So this live thing, this library thing is just great. Cause I just continue your mom, just like, stay here, you know, and yes. you're like, you can't make any noise in the library because you're not uh-huh. allowed to make noise. So that's sort of fortress. <laughs> So studious wise uh, topics and ha- how did the whole college quest to go for you and your brothers? Um, you know, it was, my parents were great. The, the, despite how strict they were and all of that, um, we knew we were all going to an Ivy League school of some sort. I mean, that was, that was kind of it. That or <laughs> UW-Madison. So that helped to narrow down the options. Why? <laughs> <laughs> that made it easy. Uh, so my, my older brother was the first one. So I watched his process. And, you know, you know, my parents always made sure we always did sort of tutoring and learning centers. My parents would spare no expense when it came to education, no matter how limited our resources were. So I watched him and uh, my, I love my older brother and we made fun of him a lot. Um, he's amazing. He's brilliant. He's a doctor. We get it. He's very nice. Um, but he is like, 
it was a mess watching him apply to college. Like he, he did his essays by hand and he just was kind of all over the place. <laughs> so last minute, like, oh my gosh. And yet here he was, he ex- was accepted at Cornell University. So he went off to the world to Cornell. So there we have a path to follow. Um, I applied to about five schools, to Brown, not Cornell, because my brother told me, do not apply here. And I said, not a problem. That's excellent advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I applied to, to Hopkins, Dartmouth, and a, a few other schools. Um, you won't be surprised to hear this, but there are three, um, three career paths for um, a Nigerian um, and most immigrants. Uh, either you're a doctor, uh, a lawyer, or an engineer. Um, I was not interested in either of those career paths. Don't tell my parents. Uh, so my strategy was, uh, you know, I got accepted into Johns Hopkins and accepted into Dartmouth. And I was looking at both. My parents said, you get to choose, you know, the, the um, scholarship package was the same. So that was done. And in my head, I was like, well, I know that I'm not going to be pre-med. I'm just going to tell my parents I'll be pre-med and then drop that game as soon as I get there. So I'm like, which <laughs> university will offer me the best options? And so I chose to go to Dartmouth because I'm like, if I drop the pre-med thing, which I know is the plan, then at least I can get a pretty well-rounded education and I can't be that mad for that long. Um, so that was that was the choice. My parents were really pleased. And so I went on to Dartmouth. Um, in the woods of New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, yeah. so I have to pause here. So um, listeners know I went to Cornell, so I'm, I'm sad that you <laughs> didn't have the greatest experience, but glad that that got you to a Dartmouth. I love what, when you had said about this model minority for the African mm-hmm. continent, you know, for the Asians, we get that, that I really, that really helped me. That, that really helped me land. And then this notion of being the doctor, I, distinctly remember. I mean, my mom was so desperate. Then at some point she went to dentistry and she's obviously not going to be a doctor. She even started floating dentistry. And I, I felt so horrible. Of course, my mom's listening. I was like, I had to be very stern, almost yelling, mother, I am not going to be a dentist. I was just not, you know, so I wish it had been more smooth like you. Be Okay. Okay. And then just kind of do a bait and switch, you know, but I did, and to your point, the Dr. Lawyer, engineer. I picked the engineering route. And, you know, I think for some of the immigrant folks listening, they're chuckling, but that kind of is the thing. Like you can do anything as long as it's one of these three things. Yes. <laughs> I love it. So, so the Dartmouth experience in the middle of nowhere, how did you find that? You know, people ask me all the time and I have to say it wasn't perfect. It's got its issues. I think there were like a total of 70 black people on <laughs> um, mm-hmm across the board when I, when I was there um, from everywhere. But again, big Nigerian presence. Uh, I loved it. I, you know, they, it was one of the most welcoming um, at the start kind of communities, part of what turned me, they had a, you know, black experience weekend. So I, I did get to see it before I committed. And it was beautiful being out in the country. Um, you know, it's a, it's a community where they really did um, enable you to create your own adventure. Um, and so I personally, that's just how my brain is wired and appreciated that I could go to a place, create a major. I worked at like every job you could possibly have on campus. Um, cause I had to, cause I wanted to. Um, I got lots of little sub scholarships to travel and to do side research projects. You know, I just felt like I owned my own 
path. I had just it really instilled in me a sense of personal agency. Um, my best friends right now are alumni. I think we were in the same class or close to it. Um, we were through the pandemic. Those were my, that was my community. Um, we talk, we still do over Zoom. Um, it just was an amazing, amazing place. Again, imperfect in so many ways. And still you see it, that there's some cultural, problematic, cultural, racial issues. It's New Hampshire. Um, and yet I owe a lot of my success to my experience there. Yeah. What, what did you study and uh, was the school part pretty easy for you or hard for you? Um, I studied, uh, much to my parents' chagrin, I got a pay, I, my, uh, I had two undergraduate uh, degrees. The first was in sociology I majored in, um, which I really, really loved. It speaks to my interest in humanity and connectivity. Um, and then I created a major um, on health policy and society because I was just very interested in global health systems, which at the time, I mean, I had to say, pat myself on the back. I was like, I am still in that space. I don't know why I landed in it, um, but I loved it. And that was my pathway into really sort of exploring how systems are created to deliver healthcare that for better or for worse in, in different contexts. So that's what I studied. Was it, um, you know, I'm not, I, I'm a studious student. You know, I studied very hard. I had really, again, learned a lot of study techniques, <laughs> spent a lot of time in the library, um, took advantage of all the support that was there. Like there was a lot of writing support, you know. So it wasn't easy, but it was a priority. So I, I did well, well enough. Um, um, and then did lots of things. I had a lot of side hustles, just like I do now, <laughs> um, where I was mentoring. I was a UGA, one of those resident advisors, so I could get free housing, really. That's why I did it. Um, and I did lots of other things just to fill out my time there. Um, because, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I'll, I'll tell you one anecdote. My freshman year, I um, this is what I realized, thir third term, that there was no way I was going to pursue any more science courses. Um, I had just got my, a beautiful D minus in uh, medics. <laughs> and, um, and I'd taken a bio class and that was a struggle. Um, and I just knew like this is I'm not thriving in this arena of the of the maths and sciences and so I called my parents and said I'm done with uh pre-med it's just not for me um do you want me to fail out of this school or do you want me to graduate and my parents were like well what do you want to do then if you're not going to do pre-med what will you do I was like I don't know I'll major in sociology what are you going to do with a sociology degree I was like oh, I don't know maybe I'll be a lawyer oh my god Molly <laughs> my mom did not speak to me for three months with that answer. <laughs> did not speak to me. Like, no exaggeration. I would call home. She did not want to talk to me, <laughs> which was very hurtful at the time. But um, now it's just very funny because, like, I'm okay. <laughs> um, but I, as long as I did well in school, that was my thing. Then my parents could not complain about what I chose to do with that degree. This is for people listening as the young people. This is the the gamesmanship, navigating the conversations with our parents. Oh my god, crazy! So how were you? Uh, and I, I am, you know, like, listen. School is hard, and for you to be doing the side hustles and making money and 
So did you feel like, yeah, I could make ends meet? Was it a bit panicky having to like, work so much and go to school? I mean, what was that experience? Like? Um, it wasn't because, you know, I grew up working hard. So really, I figured out how to fit it in. So I got the good jobs first, like the library jobs <laughs> um, uh, and the jobs where I could, you know, do homework or do a special pro. You know, I could double task, triple task. So that was fine. The only moment where I really had a panic um, was my last term. So I, I like packed it in too. So I, I did lots of terms back to back. And so I finished my coursework early, um, two terms before graduation. Um, but that last term, even if I, even though I finished early, I called my dad when we were signing in to start the term, like the day, of, like I needed to sign in and set up cause you know, this is drop dead. Otherwise I have to not take any classes this semester. And I kept calling him. He didn't answer. And I was like, dad, I need like I, that I still have one, like I owed like $5,000 or something for that semester. And my dad just did not have it. He did not have it. And he just was working his way to tell me he didn't have it. Last minute, I'm like, dad, if you don't have it, you need to tell me, I will get a loan. But I like, this is, won't do. And so that was one moment. And I was like, I had to go and sign my own loan um, just to get through that last uh, term. Um, so that was, that was the only moment where I felt like, oh, gosh, is this, really it <laughs> this is where this is where it ends uh but it was okay it was okay oh my god it's fabulous it's fabulous so career-wise world's your oyster you got off the pre-med hook you're, you're, you're free and clear how did you navigate to the professional world oh wow you know i I never knew I hadn't, I didn't have an end game. Let me just start there. <laughs> um, I knew I wanted to work in public health. So I, I found, I used sort of the, the amazing Dartmouth network. And um, during college, I did an internship in Hawaii, actually at the part department of health. Um, and so upon graduation, um, part of who I am, I sort of rallied, got a few friends to come with me to go back to Hawaii uh, where I was, my intention was to do work with the public health department. I got a scholarship, a research project scholarship to do health systems work. Um, but I put it off and I went to Hawaii first and ended up just waiting tables, uh, not doing much with that degree um, and just kind of sorting myself out. And then, you know, traveled to Brazil where I did actually do my, my scholarship research um, and also volunteered in HIV clinic and realized that I wanted to, I really wanted to work with, communities that people don't see um, or don't value um, that are just excluded from society. And that was a, that was a moment. So I knew um, that would be for me. Uh, but of course I, my scholarship was only $10,000 on another long side story. I only got $5,000 of it and I ran out of money. So I had to come back and get a, you know, a real job um, where I, again, through, a network of friends landed at a consulting firm, a social policy think tank consulting firm called Act Associates, um, which was a great learning experience for me. I was only there for a couple of years, but, you know, I got to use my degree, my undergraduate degree. The, the consulting pace is just fascinating. I mean, you know, you're an, an expert in nothing. You, your expertise is being a generalist, which I was like, this is for me. I love being a generalist. <laughs> um, so I just learned a lot of skills. Um, um, just project management and how to engage with people, how to ask questions in the right way to elicit the kind of 
data that we needed and how to sort of analyze that data in a respectful way and tell a true story of the human experience with that data. Um, so I loved it. But of course, consulting, you know, how it is, it's the churn. So year two, everyone's like, get out of here, go to school. <laughs> you need a graduate degree. Um, thank you for your service. But, you know, come back when you have something, some letters behind your name um, beyond a BA. And so I went off to Columbia. I'll say at the time I had a lot of pressure from my parents. Where are you, when are you going to get your PhD? When are you going to go to graduate school? What, what do you want to study? I'm like, I'm not just going to graduate school for your sake. So I put it off for a few years, but then landed on public health and was looking around at places and Columbia seemed best suited um, for my experience. And so moved to New York, which was the last place on the planet I thought I would ever live. Unlike many of my friends and peers and colleagues, New York City was not it for me. I did not want to go there. It's too hectic, too expensive. Um, and yet, <laughs> that's where I was. <laughs> that's where I landed for the last like 16, 17 years of my life. Um, and serendipitously through my network, you know, through Apt Associates, through Columbia, I got a, a sort of a random email from somebody from the Doris Duke Foundation. Um, saying, we're launching this initiative. And I met someone who thought you might be interested in an associate's level position. We haven't funded it yet. We don't really know exactly what it is, but I'd love to meet you and talk to you. This was the head of the medical research program there. So I, I went to go meet her. We chatted for a bit. And after a few conversations, she brought me on. I would have to say it was, a, I, was I learned a lot. I was very I didn't have a lot of grace because at the time I had a job in research at the National Center for Children in Poverty, working with an incredible researcher, Janice Cooper, um, sort of doing some on the ground systems interviews. Um, and she wanted me to stay in the space. And I just, academia is not for me. Um, so I just kind of left that behind and, and joined the foundation, which was incredible um, learning experience and for me and my career path. I did not know anything about philanthropy. I mean, you could imagine. I didn't know that there were rich people or legacy folks who gave money away, like as a job. Um, wow. <laughs> and you get paid <laughs> to do that. Like, I, I am very good at spending other people's money. Um, it's one of those talents that I just think that goes under <laughs> underappreciated. <laughs> so it's one of my talents. Um, so I really was privileged to kind of land in that space. But again, didn't I don't have an end game. So did that for a while. Was well, well supported. I had incredible mentors and want to plug and pause and shout out to the many mentors, men and women who took me under their wing for a short time or a long time and helped just push me gently in the right direction, give me advice when I needed it. That's why I didn't have to have an end game because they would just make sure that there was, you know, there was a brick before me to step on and another brick before me to step on. And that was how my path was created. And I, I live in that service. And so I'm committed to mentoring and development wherever I can, um, you know, pay it forward and, and, and around. <sighs> So fabulous. Share, um, I, I love, love this like epiphany. Whoa, <laughs> give me away millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, I just think that's the cutest thing. Like, wait a second. Come on, get out. Uh, share with folks, you know, the, um, you know, for folks who haven't 
may not understand uh, or know much about the foundation, just a little bit about that business perhaps. And then you know, you've been in academia, you've been in private sector, uh, just any reflections on the different work environments? Yeah, I am. Um, so philanthropy, fascinating place. Philanthropy is very, very white um, and very, very institutional. Um, there's a lot of bias uh, about what people deserve and who should be awarded grants. And it's, it's, it has its own problems. Um, and I think there's a lot more insight now in the field um, about how philanthropy can be better. And it's gotten a lot better but uh, there's a lot of work to do. Um, so I learned a, a lot about um, really how we embed equity. I think I've shown and partnered with lots of folks who are really not focused on being more equitable stewards of wealth, like uh, the wealth that Doris Duke has and how we have maintained. So that was a learning curve um, um, in a space of great privilege. Um, but as you noted, I've worked in public sector and a little bit of private sector and you know, public sectors, I shout out to the public servants of this country who are endeavoring to do good in broken systems that are meant to serve people. I mean, flawed in so many ways, and yet you have legions of individuals who are stepping up and doing the service of trying um, to break these systems of oppression that are embedded within the public sector. Um, I worked closely, the systems I worked with were public health and child welfare. And oh my, oh my, talk about problematic and embedded racism and all the things that, that are fearful. And, and yet there are so many beacons of light and hope and innovation um, that are happening that I, you know, do credit. And so I, I, in my work in philanthropy, my goal was how do we, support and shed light on those innovations. It's not all hopeless. Um, and how do we sort of push the needle and take risks and, and, and you know, propel um, solutions forward that can better serve children and families and communities. And so that was my endeavor, making, bridging the link between private and public sector um, in, a, in a humble way. Um, uh, so it was hard, it, uh, public sector is hard work. Um, and so I, I work on the, I, I still work sort of on the margins of those systems, watching as they, as they unfold, but also finding ways to, to improve within that practice. Um, yeah, so I, I, love, I love sort of getting a sense and a foothold into many different sectors and departments. I'll say the only area I haven't worked in, I don't think it's suitable for my personality, is corporate. <laughs> so I don't think it's for me. <laughs> I think that is a really, really wise call. I think that is <laughs> super, said many genius things. That's one of them. So this is, um, I thought I use this word, I used to say kind of level the playing field. And then folks have said, look at there's just, it's an unlevel playing field. How do you play the unlevel playing field? So thoughts, uh, so twofold. One is for folks listening, it can feel kind of hopeless. I mean, homelessness, the biggest challenge is people don't think it, we can eliminate it and we can't yeah. and it's being done. Yeah. Uh, so thoughts on what, yeah. if everyone did one thing, right? I feel like yeah. if everyone did one thing, we'd be better. So what, what would you suggest or encourage people um, who want to kind of build bridges and, and help yeah. all, all people? I think in, because our society in America is so individualistic, we it's easy to forget to look 
down and look around you and look at your neighbor as a person in your life, as someone who matters in your life, even if you don't know their name, where they come from or their history. And if we could all remember that we are all humans in this world together, that people didn't land where they landed on the streets or homeless because they didn't have a history behind them or because they, they, were, they, they just started there. There's a whole storyline to how they got to where they are. And it was, it's a human story. Um, I, I like to say this really surfaced in the pandemic, that culture is power. I, again, this speaks to my Nigerian heritage. It's when you have culture, a sense of something, social fabric that connects you to the next person behind, beside you, that reminds you that we're all humans together. But in our U.S. society, it's so complex and so many cultures and the, the driving culture is capitalism. Um, then it's easy to forget. But if we could take a moment and step back and everywhere you go, when you're walking in the streets, on the sidewalk, wherever you are, just remember, look at the human next to you and know that they have a story. Look at the human sitting on the ground and see them for who they are. I think that's the first step, that we are all humans in this together. It's not just some nameless person. Um, that's what drives me. Um, and that's why I know that there's an answer to homelessness. It starts with recognizing that we are human um, and everyone deserves to live a life of meaning and it's self-determined. So maybe it's not living the same way we do, but we should give them the chance, the opportunity and hear them um, and then create space. Yeah. Wisest words ever. Thank you, Lola. Lola, in the workplace, and I, you know, I'm getting back to the track star who just had that <laughs> moment of what, um, um, how have you, if, you know, kind of in hindsight, you can kind of see perhaps ways you may have, uh, uh, I'll say kind of held back. Um, maybe you've seen points where you've been emboldened and to step forward. I'm, I'm curious on your own personal journey of kind of being Lola and, and freeing yourself to be who you are. Maybe that's, You've always traveled that way and work. So just, just curious on your, your No, no. I was I was always pretty timid um, in my work, but one of the one of the things I did do, because I was always pushed, you know, or later in my career, especially when I was working at the foundation, to sort of speak from my point of view and speak my mind. And I'm like, I'm speaking for the people we fund. It's not about me. Um, but I watched people that I admired. Um, women of color that I admired who were in the space and watched how they worked. And they were the ones who really em emboldened me. Um, so, you know, my, one of my bosses was Mary Bassett, um, who is amazing. Um, amongst the many accolades in her career, she was a New York City health commissioner um, during the Ebola epidemic, and really sort of stewarded that. She's now the state um, health department, head of the state health department in New York. Um, but just all around a global citizen. Um, so I looked to her and how she worked to use that as uh, empowering um, and saw how she led. And she was just tenacious and relentless about talking about race and naming it. So I knew that I couldn't be timid uh, about it. I had other colleagues in the same vein who would, who would just name it on its head without fear. Um, and that for me took practice, um, especially when you're working in organizations that are pretty white-led and where there's a lot of fear in talking about race, um, especially when it's coming from a, a Black woman. 
Um, you know, people internalize it in different ways as a blame game or a guilt game. But I just felt because I saw so many leaders doing the work and we have no option, they helped me to name issues in tough places. Um, and again, I've had all around incredible champions um, globally and locally from lots of places who have cheered me on from behind the scenes. Um, so I, I would make statements at board meetings and do it with, people think it was fearless. I have a very um, <laughs> stone, I can have a stone face. So I just say things and then I move on. <laughs> um, but then I would go back and they would say, thank you for saying that. Or, wow, I can't believe you did that. I'm like, oh, I didn't, I don't know what I did, but, <laughs> but I was leaning into the data and the stats. And so, you know, one challenge, you know, I, I have faced, um, and it's become more clear to me is the being a, a black woman with power, you know, you know, I'm not rich, but I have access to rich to wealth um, and power and privilege. Um, people would say that I was intimidating. You know, the first time I heard that, I was shocked, Molly, like shocked. I am, I don't even, I don't see that in myself. Um, and I, it, I really took it to heart. I'm like, I'm, I don't want to intimidate people. I'm not trying to intimidate people. I'm not, I don't, I take that as an insult. Um, but in the last few years, I'm like, I see, I see. People find me intimidating because again, I am pretty, I'm an introvert. I'm pretty serious um, until you get to know me. And then you'll know that I'm like pretty much all heart. And it just as confused as the next person. Um, but I didn't, I had to figure out how to um, wear that coat where people found me that way. Um, and, and then sort of take comfort in the fact that that's that I could use that as power. And so I do. Um, and it's really fun when I know that I can walk into a room and people find me intimidating. And it means I can push things forward because of that. Great. I have the biggest smile on my face. I love it because that is this, this, the self-awareness, first of all, and then to be able to work with it and leverage it to serve the work, of course. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm a, I am an introvert as well. I have had these moments of, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, and- they, people might think you're stuck up or they think you're this or mm -hmm. that. I'm like, wait a second, I'm a marshmallow. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it really, for all the folks listening, you know, know that um, you can land different, for different people. And I would say that the a thing to be compassionate about is oftentimes that's about the person's own relationship with themselves or perhaps their own relationship with racism or what have you. It has really nothing to do with you know, you perhaps, yeah. and, and th therein lies an opportunity to help those folks be in better relationship with their own selves. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, I find, um, it's been a, a great gift gift. You, you travel with just an incredible groundedness about you. You know, I don't <laughs> find it, you know, intimidating. I can't see, however, that people be like, Whoa, like she's got it together. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't got it together. Why are you kidding? No. <laughs> So I, I, I think that is an absolute beautiful thing. And thank you for the shout out for all those marvelous mentors who cared enough, who could nudge you 
and obviously having such role models, you're a spectacular one uh, for all those who are lucky to be around you. Um, I could just go on and on and on. So let's just segue the, the tough conversation. I just, I do want to just give you a chance. Is there one now or was there a, a tough conversation in the past? We'll do a little say it skillfully for the listeners. Yeah. Um, as you noted at the start, I worked at the foundation for just about 15 years, a little under 15 years. Um, I had the privilege of creating an incredible community of leaders, including community solutions, where I got to spot out brilliance and then direct dollars to enable a vision um, to serve humanity. I did that both in the U.S. and through our African health work, which is still very, very, very close to my heart. Um, And I made the decision to leave. And I had to tell, it was was a tumultuous time. This was 2021. And uh, the foundation had new leadership. There was just a lot going on. Um, But the hardest part, the hardest part for me was figuring out how to tell my community um, that I was moving on, that I was no longer going to steward these dollars. And, you know, really, I had didn't would no longer have the power to sort of drive our shared vision of a better world um, with incredible leaders and so that I felt, oh, so I had to figure out, one, how to tell that to my community when we were all remote. <laughs> there was no one to call. There's no way to do it. And I had to like write an email, which felt very uncomfortable, telling everyone that I was leaving to go join this institute um, and do, a, do, do work differently. And, um, you know, the reactions were wonderful and supportive, but I know... Some felt a sense of abandonment that I was quitting on them. And it just, uh, it was hard. It was hard for me. Um, And uh, what I did learn um, in that sort of experience and exchange was that, uh, what's the word? Uh, I guess the word is evergreen. Like these relationships and this work is evergreen. And I, 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 it gave me a moment to really reflect on the good work. You know, I said at the start, I'm always looking forward, not backward and enabled me to sort of look back and see what legacy really looks like. And that's what I leaned into as I sort of charted, communicated more directly with all my community and friends that this is a legacy and I have a privilege at my age to say that I, I left a legacy um, and that legacy is all of them um, and their work. So that was that was a hard moment, a hard lesson, um, a learning curve for me. Um, and I made mistakes. I didn't tell all the right people at the right time. I kind of just vanished in some circles and it, it was messy. <laughs> it was messy. <laughs> and I was, I was reminded and I was told and, and then it just was one of those like be, you know, humility, 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 um, and honoring every, everyone else's experience in that. So I, I learned how to, how to, how to move with grace, um, and humility. And I take that to heart. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing that. I have no doubt that you laid it out in the genuine way and 
for folks who may have come back to you, it really is just this their ultimate disappointment. Like, oh my God, I can't believe you guys I have to moan and groan about this. So uh, I could go on forever. Let us let us do a wrap. Lola, do you have, assuming you are exactly where you are, do you have a regret or a do-over that you would share? Wow. Um, many. <laughs> uh, one regret. Uh, yeah, here's one. Here's one. I, for those of us who are in, in the social sector, uh, let me just talk about myself. One regret I have personally is I tend to get really into the work. I put my full focus into my mission and my work, which means that I, I can forget the people closest to me, which is my family. I have two ama- amazing, amazing, brilliant nephews and fabulous sister-in-law and my brothers are amazing and my parents and I get so caught up in the my personal and professional work that I forget to bring my family along in it and to sort of connect with them and and lend them the same heart energy that I lend in my work and so I've been reminded <laughs> Molly, <laughs> let me tell you um, that I have forgotten my people. Um, and so I am trying, trying to do my best to remember um, my, my, my own community um, of supporters and champions, my family, my immediate family and extended family in the work. Um, so I regret having kind of disconnected a bit to do this work. It's a sacrifice, um, servant leadership, and I've made those sacrifices. So that's it. And so I'm working on and doing a better job of reconnecting. Yeah. You're, you joined the club. You are amazing. One last thing, just a few words. What was it like for you to share your journey with us today? Oh, wow. Um, it's a rare moment to sort of reflect on your whole life journey. <laughs> Um, and I haven't done that in a while. So, you know, you hear me, I'm ending this with laughter because I've had so much fun. And this is a reminder of how much fun I have had in my life doing this work and how many times, no matter how hard it is, I've sat with people and we just laugh and connect. And I'm smiling right now because it's just such an amazing experience um, for me. And so I, I know that that is a, a rare privilege. And so it's reminding me of that. And the one thing that I, I have to correct in this story, though, is one thing about my mom. She is tough, not, no lie. She is a tough lady. Um, she softened in her older age, which I appreciate, but she was always looking out for me. I still remember on my way to college, I'd go home you know, between terms and uh, when I get ready to pack up and go back to school, you know, my dad would give me like 50 bucks <laughs> cash, like <laughs> be safe. And, you know, this is for the taxi. It was cute. I appreciate it. But my mom knew the reality and she would pack like a thousand dollars in my pocket. She's like, take this with you. This is just to make sure you are okay. You have enough. If you need anything, you can call me. But she always was looking out. Um, and she wouldn't tell my dad, this is her own side thing. And she, she just held it down for me and for my brothers. And to that, for that, I thank her. 
And I thank you, Lola, you rock. What an incredible gift <laughs> to hear from you, to learn from you. You inspire. I, I just have the most giant smile. And my eyes are so bright. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being more than your fair share of part of the solution. You're helping all of us to be safe, seen, and heard, and our true and very best selves. Lola, you take good care. Thank you. Okay, folks, talk about a life being well-lived. Wow. Okay, let me wrap. My thought for the week, courtesy of Lola, everywhere you go, look at the human next to you and know they have a story. See them for who they are. Create space for them. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Lola's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, More than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 